Romans chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Romans, the 12th chapter. We're going to continue in our study of this really important chapter in the development of Paul's thought in the book of Romans. As I said over and over in the previous weeks, it's a section with 25 little phrases that function either as participial commands or direct imperatives, and basically as 25 understandings and applications of the gospel. Let me read that just to set it in our minds. While you're turning there, uh, because we don't have a PowerPoint today, we're going to go analog, so you have an actual uh, sheet to look at the outline. But there's the challenge there is now you see how much I had hoped to get through, and I don't know if I can, so we'll, we'll just see how far we get. Verse 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Bless those who bless you, bless those, excuse me, who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My friend Dick Mayhew has written a book on spiritual leadership that I, and spiritual growth that I've so profited from over the years. In that book, he recounts the time when Sir Christopher Wren the great architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London arrived at the construction site of the cathedral unannounced one day. He began to interact with some of the workers and he cornered three to ask them a simple question. What are you doing? What are you doing? The first man looked at Christopher Wren and said, hey, I'm I'm here earning a meager living to support my family. The second responded to the great architect, I'm just building another building. This is what I do. I build buildings. And the third had a much grander view. This was his answer. I am a part of a magnificent project to build the world's most beautiful cathedral to the glory of of the great God. Wow. Let's change gears. Ready? Why are you here? 
today? How would you ask that? In your care group, in your Sunday school, here at church, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm bringing my family to church because it's Sunday and that's what we do. Well, I want my family to grow up in, yeah, with a habit of church, so this is what we've always done. I wonder if anybody would say, and I don't want to be too grandiose like this, but I wonder if it would approach anyone's heart to say to the, the question, what are you doing? I'm trying to influence eternal souls in my sphere of influence and make them ready for eternity. Is that what you're doing? Just, just pause. What are you doing here? It's a really good question, and I have to confess that without deliberate attention to answering that question, it's easy just to come and go through the, the motions of church week in and week out, to go to care group week in and week out, to go to Sunday school week in and week out, to have friends who are Christians over to our house and go over to others, and you just kind of go and you experience without stopping to say, I am a part of God's grand design for the improvement of souls to be ready for heaven. That's a pretty profound, grand view of why we're here and what we're doing. Well, in the section in Romans 12, as we've been saying for several weeks, Paul is elevating our understanding of relationships. And he's doing so by showing us what relationships should look like as a response to the gospel. In other words, if we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died a wicked sinner's death, which we just sung a minute ago, he's... He died a sinner's death in our place as sinners to give us his righteousness, was crucified on Calvary, buried for three days, and rose from the tomb. If he did that for us and we believe in that, it should have mammoth consequences and effects on every dimension of our lives as regulated by the Word of God, but especially when it comes to relationships. Relationships with God, others, who are both believers and unbelievers. He began this chapter, as you know, by saying to understand the mercies of God in the gospel, presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship or service, and not to be conformed by, to this world, not to be like the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's a mental thinking process. So that we could prove or literally act out what the will of God is for us. And then he talks about spiritual gifts. And then he comes right down to the, the ground level of relationships. And the best way to approach this, it's a giant list, as we've said over and over, with 25 little sections Actually, 26, we're going to combine a couple. But we're going to look at them together and understand 25 applications of the gospel for relationships. Now, if you look down at your little sheet you have, you'll see what we've done in the first 11. We've already covered 11 of them. Uh, verses 9 through 12, love sincerely, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted in love. Prefer one another in honor, prefer others in honor, be disciplined in relationships, be enthusiastic about spiritual service, serve the Lord, find happiness in hope, persevere in tribulation, and be devoted to prayer, which brings us to verse 13. And I, I want to see if we can cover as many of these as we can today, but 
They are all worthy of an entire hour of study or more themselves. So we come to number 12. Let's just dive right in. Number 12, be generous to believers' needs. Be generous to believers, the needs of believers. He says in verse 13, this participle that really functions as a command or an imperative. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints. Generosity is a significant and a demonstrable value of a living sacrifice, being a living sacrifice for Jesus. Let me say that again. Being generous, having a heart of generosity, generosity is a significant and an observable, a demonstrable value of being a blood-bought son or daughter of the Savior, living as a holy sacrifice like Romans 12, 1 tells us. Christians are, are generous. They're generous people. They're not hoarders. They're not selfish with their resources, their homes, as we'll see in a moment, their finances, their time, their attention, their care. They're, they're generous. It's really interesting here. It says contributing to the needs of the saint, and everyone's mind immediately runs to physical, physical and financial needs, and, and that's certainly a part of this. But it's bigger than that. Let me ask you, do you, are all of your needs measurable by a dollar sign? No. Contributing to the needs of the saints means that we know what the needs of the saints around us actually are. He's just talked about persevering in tribulations or difficulties, and it's not uncommon for these difficulties to include many pressing needs, financial, emotional, spiritual it's especially true of the early church where the Jews were being ostracized and the Gentiles would be criminalized for believing in Jesus. They had a lot of needs. They were put out of their social circles, sometimes out of their families, and experienced deep and abiding needs. Notice that generosity, by the way, is called for here as directed at saints. Now, I want to talk about this very briefly. This is worthy of a whole series, but... Let me just say here, we're not called as believers to contribute to the needs of everybody in the world. The, the church is not the welfare for the world, in other words. We're not commanded to solve world hunger, give money to people whose true condition we do not know. But we are called to know, understand, identify, and meet the needs of other believers. It's very clear here, contributing to the needs of the saints. And let me just go a little further. This is, this is not a care group pitching in to buy someone a birthday present. As kind and generous as that is, and we should be doing those kind of things. This is finding out someone's genuine, heartfelt need that may express itself in emotions or a wallet and identifying them. I'm drawn back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe in this first generation of church, the first church actually that it had ever gathered. They were feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together. Guess, and listen to this. And they had all things in common. 
This wasn't some kind of um, Russian socialism. This was contributing to the needs of the saints. There was nothing that anyone had that was too dear and too precious to be held back if someone had a true need that they could meet with it. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and 18, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, let's stop right there. Rich in this present world. Matthew 6 defines wealth very interestingly because we all think, well, I'm not rich, but I know so-and-so who is. I mean, someone's always richer than us, and they are richer than us, and there are also people who are poorer than us. But Jesus basically says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be handed to you. What are all these things? A place to, eat, uh, to, to sleep tonight, something to wear today, and something to eat before you go to bed. Basically, if you have a place, more, more than a place to live, you know where your next meal is coming from, and you have more than one thing to wear, you are definitionally by Jesus, rich. And that's certainly all of us. So before we think, when we hear this and instruct those who are rich in this world, we think, yeah, I, can't, I hope they're listening. No, this is for all of us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, that will come back in our, in our, in our uh, chapter, nor to fix their hope on uncertainty of riches, of riches, they could dissolve and go away, but on God who supplies with us all things to enjoy. Then he says this, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Wow. Now, if you're like me, I read this, and my my first thought is I know a lot of people this should apply to, and then I feel the constricting presence of the Holy Spirit around my heart. You ever felt that constricting presence? It's like, Oh, I mean, what about me? What do I share with others? What do I give up? What do I spend on and on and on? And listen, certainly some believers have been gifted and blessed by God so as to be able to give more than others. But there's no qualifier here. It just says all of us contributing to the needs of the saints. It involves revealing needs as well as knowing needs by the way, the word translated contributing is the word for fellowship. Fellowshipping with the needs of the saints. Identifying with them, meeting them. And don't miss the reality that all believers have a responsibility to practice. Hospitality and meet needs of the saints, which brings us to number 13. Using resources for others' needs. Number 13, practicing, or practice rather, hospitality. Verse 13 in the middle reads, as you contribute to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitalities. Now, let, let's have a little um, uh, exercise in our memory. You go back to the nativity scene. You go back to the story we all know of Joseph and Mary. They were traveling down from the north to the south, from uh, the area of, uh, of Nazareth down into uh, Bethlehem. And they were going to register for the census, and they needed a place to stay. And there was no room in the end. That would make sense because it was a time to register for the census and all the rooms were taken. This was not like uh, uh, you get online and Google your, your, your favorite 
restaurants and hotels and amenities in the area and you reserve something. There were no reservations. You showed up and said, do you have room? That, that was it. I know that some of you who are under 25 can't imagine a world without a telephone. There were no telephones. I mean, just put yourself in this context for a second and you're gonna understand the power of hospitality. There were no call-aheads, reservations. And the inns were extremely dangerous and targets for robbers because they knew that you were traveling with resources. Joseph and Mary were in that case, right? <laughs> no room for them in the end. Traveling was a challenge. When you left for a trip, you had no assurance of where you would, go, where you would stay as you traveled or sometimes even when you arrived. As Christians traveling around the ancient Near East, like Paul... It was critical that they found hospitality, listen, among other believers. This was the case. Now, this is so foreign to us because we're such private Americans, but this was the case. At any point, at any time during the day or in the middle of the night, you could have a knock on the door. Excuse me, I, I heard that you believe in, in, in Jesus. I do. You're a Christian. I am. Great. Can I stay with you? And you know what Paul said? <laughs> the answer should be? Come on in. Come on in. Philoxenia is the Greek word. You know what it means? Lover of, not visitors, strangers. In other words, true hospitality, are you ready for this? True hospitality is not us hosting our missionaries and letting them stay in our basement. That's sweet. We should keep doing that. Biblical hospitality is always being to entertain and have in your home someone who claims Christ and has a need. Remember that constricting presence of the Holy Spirit on our hearts? It refers to providing food and lodging for people you don't know. And nothing is said here, listen, nothing is said here about extreme vetting. Nothing. If they claim Christ, you let them in. And if you were taken advantage of, we came into this world with nothing and we will leave with nothing, right? The verb translated practice is also surprising. It suggests vigorous effort. One Greek scholar comments on it like this. Christian hospitality must inconvenience, it must inconvenience us more than that of the world. In other words, Christians should be more inconvenienced by being hospitable than those in the world because we do not choose our time or our guests, end quote. Now, this is not over-expressed um, uh, in our world, in our culture, in uh, the wealthy part of the world called America, but there are places where this happens even to this day. I've been in Africa where, where people just show up at a person's house and because you're a Christian and they're a Christian, they expect a place to live, and no one even blinks an eye. Come on in. But it's also more than that. Leon Morris adds, Paul is not advocating a pleasant social exercise among friends, but the use of one's home to help even people we do not know if that will advance God's cause. 
3 John 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Here's the thought. As we look for the opportunities that we should be aware of to exercise hospitality for people we don't know, one of the weirdest verses in the whole Bible says, you may do that, and it would be an angel. You say, well, come on, really? Remember what Hebrews 13, 2 says? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Here it is. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. I just wonder if, if I've ever done that. I, I don't know that I have. We've had people who were strangers stay in our home over the years, but I don't have any evidence that they were angels, but this is evidence that it happens. Now, we could talk about what that means, and I think we should be ready for that, and our church should be mobilized to do this, and that, that's a, a, a practical application that I hope some of you will take as a project and a ministry and we could apply ourselves to. But let's be even more, more uh, practical in terms of what we can do about this. How about this? Do we have homes that are willing and ready to, be re- to receive a stranger if a phone call happened? Even as simple as, and this, ha- this has happened before, someone's coming through town and they say, hey, look, uh, we we're going to go from, from Denver to St. Louis. We, we can't make it. Is there a place uh, with someone we know that you know in your church we could crash? Would you feel imposed upon if one of the staff called you and said, hey, there's someone on their way from Denver to St. Louis and they need a place to crash. Oh, the house isn't ready. Oh, we don't have enough food. Oh, we have guests coming over. Oh, we, we, or would you say, bring them on. Are we using our homes? This is at the heart of this. Are we using our homes to glorify God and apply the gospel. It's in little ways. I, I, I really don't want to impose on anyone's um, uh, eternal reward. But I have a friend, Scott. Good, very good friend of mine who lives in Phoenix. I was at his house a couple of years ago. And um, I, was, I was actually going through and I asked him, can I, look, I'm going through Phoenix. I'm going to be there or not. Can I crash at your house? He said, sure. And so I did. And it came time to, we talked and had dinner, and it came time to go to bed, and he said, okay, uh, here's where you're going to stay. And, and then he ushered me into his and his wife's bedroom. And said, here it is, here's some water. And I went, Scott, this is, this is your room. What? I, put me on the floor. He said, oh, no, no, We've already put the air mattress up, my wife and I, and we're going to sleep up there. We want you to have our bed. That's what this is about. Where you gratefully and graciously sacrifice what you have to contribute to the needs of the saints and also to be hospitable. We may not have tons of strangers coming through, but we always have the opportunity to give our best to those who have a need to sleep and eat in our house. Now, I don't want to get too far into this kitchen, pardon the pun, but you know what that means, men and women, is that our house is always, at least in some kind of state, where if someone showed up, we wouldn't say, give me an hour to clean first. Our house is, we have boys that come through. Our house is always cluttered with stuff they've eaten and left over. And there's a difference between 
the normal function of a house and just not paying attention to our home. This, is, this really is talking about using your home as a ministry and having it always in, the, per, uh, in the, the permissible disposition for people to take wonderful advantage of us. Not take advantage, but be advantaged by us. You say, I don't know, Rick. That's, that's kind of getting in my kitchen. That's pretty... That's pretty Pretty imposing. Well, I didn't write it. We're supposed to be ready to be hospitable at any point. You want to have a fun lesson one night? Teach your children. Hey, we need to keep the house uh, in better shape. Why? Because an angel might stay with us. What? (laughs) I didn't write it. That's what the writer of the Hebrews said. So let's care for our homes so that if we receive that phone call, we are ready to say, hey, you know, pardon us, we're, we're, we got things coming and going. Baseball stuff is over there. Soccer stuff is over there. It's a little cluttered, but it's clean enough. We'd love for you to stay. And you know what? You want my bed? There's clean sheets. Ouch. Are our homes willing sacrificial vessels to carry gospel truth and care to anyone who needs it, especially believers? It's not so much about cleanliness. It's about willingness. Let's move on before too much more convicted. Number 14. Number 14. And I just feel like I'm giving you a list, and this is a list, so here's the next one. Be kind to your persecutors. Be kind to your persecutors. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. If you ever needed proof that the Bible was a divine document, this verse does it. Who would write this from their own heart? Bless those, be a blessing to those who want to destroy you. Okay, thanks, Paul. And let me tell you, if you live long enough, listen, eye contact, just for a second, ready? If you live long enough, you will experience persecution of some level from someone. Someone's gonna give you a hard time. Oh, it's worse than that, or worse than... To be more biblical, let me say it like this. This this verse has always troubled me a bit. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, listen to this, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know what that means? I don't even have to be obedient. I just need to want to be obedient, and I'm a target for persecution. He didn't say those who are godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You are a target for the enemy to send any possibility he can into your life to apply pressure on you to get you to deny or diminish your commitment to the gospel. Persecution can come from a lot of sources. It can come from family members. It can come from friends. It can come from neighbors. It can come from coworkers. It can come from schoolmates. But you know what? We've talked about this over and over. Persecution or the application of trouble flips us as he says in Romans 5. The application of trouble and pressure that tries and tempts you, that can come even from other believers. And it's hard to say, but I've, I look back at my own life and if I've, if I've been given a hard time or persecuted in, in any small level, I, even, I almost hate to use the word knowing people around the world who are in fear of their life for meeting 
this morning in church. But the, the, whatever I would define as persecution in my life, I would guess, I would, I would venture to say 98 or higher percent of that has come from people who say they're Christians. It's just tragic. Again, it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. How should a believer, a mature believer, respond to someone giving them a hard time because of their faith and in their faith because of their values? I've heard our president say that he's a counterpuncher. They hit me and I hit back and I hit back harder. You know what Paul says? They hit me and I bless them. I don't hit back. I don't push back. We're going to see that in the rest of the chapter, by the way. If someone persecutes me, you know what they get out of me? They get a blessing. It's incredible. Listen to the instruction of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and following. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemy. Stop right there. Just stop the presses. Drop the mic. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. You want another proof that the Bible is a divine document? Name me any human heart that would concoct that kind of philosophy. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. Whoever takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Be willing to be taken advantage of by your enemies. Give to everyone who asks of you and and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to your, to your account? That's an incredible statement. It's, he's saying it's easy to love the people who love you. For even sinners love those who love them. If you do to those, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Because even sinners do that as well. Wow. This is tough. And we can't really go too much into this without coupling it with number 15, which you'll understand. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. What is the temptation when someone hits you? You know what the temptation is? You know what the natural instinct is? To hit back. I understand the guy who said that and why he means that. That's the natural impulse and instinct. He says, bless... And he says, bless, and he adds it again, bless again, bless and don't do harm or curse. This takes the principle to a deeper and farther lesson. Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Give them a blessing and do not push back with a curse. Um, this, is a, this is one of the hardest things for Kim and me to talk about, to pray about, but it's been one of the greatest blessings of our life. Many years ago, we had a situation in our life where uh, I think we were not treated uh, wisely or, or fairly or Christianly by someone who I would expect to have done that. 
And we were at a loss for how to respond, completely at a loss. Until I saw 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn over there for a moment. I want you to see this. Mark this. Turn the page down. Highlight it. This is such wonderful truth. 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also has suffered for you. Don't miss this. Leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed, let's look at this example. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie about those who persecuted him. In verse 23, here it is. While being reviled, persecuted, torn up, tortured, Mocked while being reviled. You know what? He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. How do you do that? How can we bless and not curse? How can we pray for those who persecute us? How can the world, can we bless the people who are giving us the hardest time and the most hard. How, how can we do that? Peter says, Jesus did that. And then, wonderfully, he tells us how and why he could do it. This is the key. But Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There it is. You understand that God is the one who will have his day. Look, look down the page. I don't, I don't want to sneak ahead too far, but look at verse um, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19. Never, these two nevers are incredible. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for his written vengeance is whose? Vengeance is whose? Whose is it? It's God. Some of you said mine and God's. Same thing. <laughs> it's God's. That's what Jesus was doing. He entrusted himself to God, knowing God will judge righteously and get this, in his way, at his time, in his moment. And it might not even be in this world and in this lifetime. Isn't it a horrific idea that those who persecute us, those who give us the hardest time, who may not be believers, will ultimately be judged righteously in hell forever? That gives us not the... The, the impulse to punch back and to hit back harder, that gives us the impulse to love and to, and to pray more fervently that they don't experience the judgment that lasts forever even though they're giving us persecution that lasts for a moment. You want a simple? I think this is saying we are called to treat our enemies as if they were our friends. We're treating them as if they were our friends. We're going to come back to this when we get to verse 17 and even in verse 19. So just hold on that. Watch this transition. Number 16. Number 16. I love this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And let me tell you, don't don't be so quick to say that's the easy one. I think when I look at all of these, this might be the hardest one. 
This is really hard. Now, number, we can go ahead and look at also at number 17. You can put your notes wherever you want as well. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Number 17, weep with those who weep. Let's kind of take those two together because they have impact on one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. In the next few applications, Paul turns this intensity and interesting response to others in the Christian world based on our emotional contact and our care for each other. First, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Wow. I think it might be easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Let me explain to you. Let's say that you have a a friend who you work with who's a believer, and you're both up for a job promotion. And he or she get the promotion and you don't. Do you rejoice with his rejoicing or her rejoicing? Is that something you can rejoice in? I don't mean really rejoice, not, hey, that's great. Do you really say, I'm so glad for you. I'm so happy for you. a sweet friend of our family who for many years struggled and I know we have people in this church the same way this should encourage you many years they struggled and were unable to have children and I remember her saying every time a friend of mine has a child it just buries me emotionally until Every time someone had a child, I began to rejoice and I bought baby clothes and I gave diapers and I prayed. And she said, my focus on their joy dissolved my sorrow. Does it bring a desire to be happy with those who rejoice or does it create a jealousy for our own personal condition? Do you see why this is the hardest one? I'm a jealous guy, are you? I mean, do you find yourself, boy, I wish I had, I wish I could, I wish I did? This erases that. When someone is blessed, we rejoice with them happily. And at the same time, the other side of the coin, number 17, is we weep with those who weep. How do we view the blessings of others and how do we view the The troubles of others, they really go hand in glove because we're not looking at blessings or problems as much as we are the others. Weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, one member of the body suffers, all the members suffer with it. And one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. There it is in in other words. Oh, Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What does it mean to weep with those who weep? I think it means that when others cry, you cry with them. And you cry for them. And you identify with their condition that's caused the sorrow. You know what this means? 
You really care. When you put these two together, it means you really care about their blessings and you care about their misfortunes. You genuinely care. I love the fact that we call our small groups what? Care groups. That's exactly what it should be, is the transference of of care. The genius of this is, is noticeable because you'll be tempted to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice who are the most attractive to you, the easiest to get along with, the ones that you might receive something from, the ones who may do this for you in the future, and yet, number 18, be impartial. Be of the same mind toward one another. The command speaks to the simple issue of treating others in the body of Christ as equals. There's no one higher or lower on the care rung as to be treated better or worse. Paul's going to say later in verse chapter 15, verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind toward one another according to Christ Jesus. There it is. We see each other as siblings on equal footing, not as better or worse. It means we're not being influenced by what they wear as to whether we're going to be kind to them by what they have, by what they do for a living, by what they do for us, by how much money they have, by what degrees they possess or have earned, even how nice and kind they've been to us. Us. Look at the look at the statement. Be of the same mind toward one another. See everyone from the same perspective as valuable recipients of your gospel application. That means that we have to wash our eyes. Turn over to James chapter two, and. Tighten your seatbelt as you go. James chapter 2. This is what James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, and never tells us he's the half-brother of Jesus, by the way. I think if I had been James, I would have started my epistle by, you'd know who I am, don't you? He didn't. James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of, Here's the flashing red sign, personal favoritism, the opposite of being the same mind toward one another. Then he goes on, and he gives an illustration. If a man comes into your church, into your assembly, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in the same assembly a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. You don't get a seat. You got to sit in the floor. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And, oh my, become judges with Evil motives. Now, just, just pause right there. What possible evil motives could be associated with this? Here's how badly we think. People with means we look at as getting close to because we might get some of their means. That's the bad motive here. And people who don't have anything to offer, we tend to put them on the floor and away from us because we have nothing to gain from them. That's the evil motive. 
Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who, have, who love him? It's not about what you have or what you know, who you know. It's about faith in him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? He gives the, the, um, the cultural nuance of how wicked the rich people were in that day. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love that that's the royal law, the golden command. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as sinners or transgressors. Wow. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? How do we look at others? James says, look at the heart as fellow heirs of grace. Paul says, have the same mind. Have the same mind toward one another. Can I quickly give you these next two? Because they they, they are attached to this. Number 19, be humble. This is the attitude that drives it. This is the attitude that drives it as being in the position of looking at others as more important than yourself, as Paul told the Philippians. This is verse 16, but we're going to take two of these phrases together because they they complement each other by a conjunction. Do not be haughty or proud in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Those are two phrases. We're putting them together in one because they're, they're connected by that little phrase, that little conjunction, but the virtue moves from the inside to the outside. Don't be proud in your mind, but associate with the lowly. And what he's saying is don't have the good old boys or good old gals club in which no one can join you because you're better in your mind than anyone else. You associate with the lowly. The lowly here, by the way, doesn't always mean a, um, a financial condition. It, sometimes it's used of low in spirit. Someone who's in a dark place and they're their walk with the Lord, someone who's struggling, someone who's sorrowful. You walk with the, the needy. These are the people to whom we contribute who have needs. That's the lowly. We associate with them. By the way, associate means fellowship. It doesn't mean they're your friends. It means they're your good friends. Again, James captures the essence of this. The problem is when we look down on people we think are, here it is, below us. Financially, socially, maturely, emotionally, personally, even spiritually. Well, you're not at my level, so I won't participate in fellowship with you. It goes farther than merely thinking this way. Paul encourages us to associate, to be close to the lowly in ministry, fellowship, and friendship. And the next admonition, he goes to the heart of why this is a challenge to imply, to apply. Number 20, do not be conceited. Wow. In the, at the, the momentum of these last eight commands, he says, do not be wise. The end of verse 16, do not be wise in your own estimation. I love the English word estimation. It comes, it's a cousin to the word esteem. Do not, buy, do not be wise in your own estimation esteeming of yourself, the way you estimate yourself. 
He identifies the core hindrance to loving Christian relationships. It's thinking more about yourself than others, thinking higher of yourself than you should. Being wise in your own estimation means you're being so conceited, we, let me put me in there, we would be so conceited that we believe that our perspective is not only right, but it's better than others. And guess what? It may be. It might actually be. But Paul says, you still refuse, don't refuse associating with others. Living in the assumption of your own conceited self-righteousness and self-ascribed wisdom is conceit. He says, don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't be conceited. Now that was eight or nine it was fast, but let me pull it all together for you real quick, can I? Paul is deeply concerned that we become deeply concerned about each other. I was praying about this passage this week and sitting at a coffee shop because of our remodeling, I was doing the Lord's work at Starbucks. Thinking about this and wondering and dreaming a little bit. Listen, we have a great church that cares for each other so much. But if we excelled still more and became, this, this, this would describe us, these applications of the gospel. What would, what would that look like? What would that feel like? Can you not with me look at each one of these and say, boy, I can grow in any of those areas, every one of those areas? Instead of saying, boy, I could grow in those areas, can we grow together in these areas? Maybe your care group tonight, just to say before you get anything else, God is telling us through Paul's pen some very pointed and practical applications of how we relate to one another and other believers. How can we be more specific in what that means? Knowing it's going to be painful, it's going to be inconvenient, and it's going to be sacrificial. We are to care about each other and care for each other. That's the point. Why? Why? Because of the gospel. So let me go back to where we began. Remember the architect, Christopher Wren, What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing in your relationships? Can you have a glorious vision that's bigger than the moment and say, I am trying to impact my brothers and sisters for Christ, extending into their world and into their life all the way to eternity? It's pretty clear and painful to apply. I'm just reading my notes. I'm just woundedly convicted about so many lapses I have in this. And we do it because of the great gospel, because of the mercies of God in the first 11 chapters of Romans. We get to, not have to, we get to be these kind of people for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ.